All right, can I have you please turn with me in your Bibles to the Epistle of James, chapter 2. I guess it's been three weeks since we've been in James, uh, with uh, Thanksgiving, and then I was out of town. Uh, Let's review a little bit, okay? Uh, As we said when we first started our study in James, James is calling his readers, who are primarily Jewish Christians, but it applies to any Christians, obviously, he's calling us to maturity and commitment. Apparently, uh, the group he had in mind in his day that he was really writing to were not maturing as fast as he would have liked. And so he really is challenging them to kind of grow up and, uh, you know, kind of really go out to be committed. That's why the first thing he tackles is the issue of accepting trials with joy, because he knows that God uses trials to grow our faith and produce in us the character of Christ. Now, he quickly follows that by warning us to um, resist temptation, or he's encouraging us to resist temptation because he knows that's what the devil's going to use to undo everything God is wanting to do. So God wants us more and more like Jesus, and trials help to accomplish that. Uh, James says, but you know, resist temptation because they'll just undo everything the Lord is doing. He's wanting to conform you into the image of Jesus, He's wanting you to, your light to shine in this dark world. But uh, if you don't resist the flesh, then everything God wants to do is going to be undone. So he's talking about, you know, Christians being really just committed and uh, going on to maturity. But then starting in verse 21 of chapter 1, James seems to shift his focus from carnal Christians to counterfeit Christians. Verse 21 He said, therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. So it's kind of obvious he's talking to people there who were going to the church, wherever they were, that James is writing to. And uh, he's encouraging them to uh, not just hear the word, but receive it, to receive it and get saved, uh, which is able to save your souls. Verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. So it seems that James is trying to get his readers uh, to understand that a person can be religious, they can go to church, and guess what? Believe all the right things about Jesus and still not be saved. And that this might be the very reason why so many of them were not mature or walking very closely with Jesus in their faith because they didn't really have saving faith. What they had was religion. Don't forget now, he's talking to a group of Jewish believers. They thought they were believers. They were Jewish. It seems like they were Judaizers, uh, really. What is a Judaizer? Well, somebody who believes, a Jew who believes that for uh, a Gentile to be saved, we'll say, uh, that person has to get circumcised, keep the law of Moses, and then they can believe in Christ for salvation. That was what's called a Judaizer. A lot of these were Pharisees who didn't want to let go of Judaism completely, and so they tried to combine Judaism with Christianity. They kind of made Judaism the kind of the entryway uh, into salvation. You've got to come through Judaism, through Moses, before you can believe in Christ and be saved. They had religion, but they did not have a relationship with Christ based on God's grace. And uh, this, guys, wasn't just a problem uh, in the first century church. Guess what? It continues to be a problem in the 21st century church as well. 
we shouldn't be surprised because Jesus warned us uh, in numerous places and through various parables of this very thing. Uh, one of them, we know the parable of the, of the uh, tares and wheat, where he warned us that eventually Satan would sow tares among the wheat. In other words, he would sow uh, false believers among the true in an effort to water down the church, uh, to get it to uh, succumb to carnality, uh, where the leaven would spread and the whole church would be corrupted kind of a thing. But um, these tares, he said, the devil was going to sow into the body, and we see it all across uh, our country. We see uh, in many churches that that the enemy has sown a lot of, uh, in many of these churches, uh, actually the uh, pastors themselves are the terrorists. That's the real problem. Uh, in a lot of these churches, the pastors themselves are unbelievers. You know, I hear reports all the time from Christians who said, who say things like, you can't believe what my pastor's teaching. He's teaching this or that or psychology or spiritual formation or Christian Marxism uh, in the church. This is a, a problem, especially in the last days, church. And uh, Jesus tried to warn us, but he wasn't the only one. Uh, the other apostles warned us as well. But uh, even in Jesus' own ministry, he had to deal with those that attached themselves to him as disciples, called him Lord, when in reality they weren't even genuine Christians at all. I'll read to you a couple of passages. Luke 6.46, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet don't do the things that I tell you? speaking to a group of disciples who he knew was, weren't really true believers. But they were following him, just like a lot of folks are following Jesus in various churches across our country that don't know him. Well, how do we know they don't know him? Because they don't obey him. Now, any true Christian is not going to obey Jesus perfectly all the time. We know that. But if the pattern of a person's life who professes to know Christ is basically disobedience to all that he has said. What makes them think that they're a true Christian? And that's what Jesus went on to say in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. For many will say to me on, the, on that day, the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practiced lawlessness. Lawlessness would be doing everything that God's law forbid. Paul warned Titus to be on guard against these people in the church. Of these, he said in Titus 1, verse 16, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him. They profess with their mouths that Jesus is their Lord, but their lives don't reflect that. Uh, guys, these are religious phonies. And... In the New Testament, they are the equivalent of the mixed multitude that attached themselves to God's true people, Israel, when God led his people out of Egypt. We've talked about this when we were in our Exodus study. Uh, what exactly are this, this mixed multitude? Well, uh, basically, for a lack of a better term, they were religious unbelievers, uh, probably some Gentiles, maybe some secular Jews that came out of Egypt, okay, uh, but really had not made a true commitment to the Lord and really had not entered into a covenant with him personally. You know, there are a lot of people, and let's be honest, as we look back at what happened in Egypt and how God was moving with a mighty and outstretched arm, he was bringing one miraculous judgment after another against Egypt, and a lot of people were wowed, okay? Many Gentiles were wowed as they watched the God of the Jews uh, do these things, realizing, man, this is a very powerful God. 
And so when God led his people out of Egypt, they followed. But they didn't make a commitment to God becoming his covenant people. They just wanted to tag along. Because first of all, who wants to stay in Egypt with the losers? Okay, the losing team. Nobody wants to be on the losing team. They lost. The God of the Hebrews kicked their butts, okay? We're not staying here with the losers. We want to come out and, and follow the people of God and see what else he's going to do. They were thrill seekers for the most part. And um, we see those in the church today. There are the mixed multitude in the church. Although they're not called the mixed multitude, in the book of, uh, of Revelation chapter 3, they're called the lukewarm. The church of Laodicea was lukewarm. Now, that's not a lukewarm Christian. That is a religious unbeliever who has just enough of the world, excuse me, enough of the Lord, where, you know, they're really trying to mix God and the world together, but they're not saved. They haven't made a commitment. And uh, we see that in the church today. And James in chapter 2 is basically kind of keying in on these people, all right, that he wants to kind of um, uh, challenge them to see where they are, that they're really just lukewarm. They have a form of godliness, but they really have not accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. They have religion. They're trying to relate to Jesus through the works of the law and rituals and various things. So they have religion, but they don't have a relationship with Christ. And a lot of us fell into that category, you know, as uh, Gentiles. Um, my Roman Catholic upbringing. I mean, I had a relationship with Jesus based on the doctrines and the dogmas of the Roman Catholic Church. I didn't have a personal relationship with the Lord, uh, not until I got older and received Him as my Lord and Savior. So, James in chapter 2, starting with verse 14, and running through the end of the chapter, begins to really zero in on these religious unbelievers, these Jews who were uh, not genuinely saved. And he wants them to understand that there is such a thing as, listen, passive faith. There is such a thing as passive faith, which is dead and cannot save. And then there is active or saving faith, which is alive and full of good works. So verse 14, he says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Now, guys, as we said when we first started the book of James, Martin Luther, because of this statement right here and others at the end of chapter 2, where it seems like James is saying to be saved, you have to have faith plus works. Because of that, Martin Luther rejected the book of James as being uninspired or non-canonical. Not only did he not believe it should have been in the New Testament, he says it's so corrupt, throw it into the Rhine River. Get rid of it. It doesn't belong in the Bible. We understand why he felt so strongly about that because at the time Martin Luther said that, he and the other reformers were locked in a very bitter battle with the Roman Catholic Church about this very issue. What does it take for a person to be saved? What's involved? Of course, the Roman Catholic Church taught that it involved believing in Jesus plus works. So, you know, lighting the candles, going to Mass, praying the rosary, keeping the sacraments. That was all required, plus your faith, to get saved. The reformers were absolutely adamant, no, the Bible is very clear that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's it. It's, it no, there's no works. The works come after you're saved and are an evidence of your salvation. But did James actually teach that salvation was a combination of faith coupled with works? The answer, guys, is no. 
No. I understand where uh, Martin Luther is coming from. It looks that way uh, if you just look at it quickly. But no, I don't believe James was teaching faith coupled with works equals salvation. Um, he didn't teach faith plus works equals salvation. He taught a faith that works that is an evidence of salvation. Let me paraphrase verse 14, what I believe James is actually saying. He is basically saying if a person claims to be a Christian, has faith, but has no works, no fruit or evidence of a changed life to back it up, can that kind of so-called faith save him? This is where James was coming from. This is the very thing that Jesus taught when he said that true Christians, uh, when he said of true Christians, you will know them by their fruit. You will know them by their fruit. Then James begins to talk about some of the works or the fruit that accompanies true saving faith. Verse 15, he said, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, oh, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you don't give them the things which uh, are needed for the body, what is it profit? Or in other words, how is that kind of faith worth anything? It's the idea. This kind of faith, quote-unquote, is what James goes on to call dead faith in verse 17. Dead faith. Those people who possess dead faith are those who, you know, talk the talk, but they don't really walk the walk. You know, they go to church and um, talk about the love of God, maybe even quote the Bible and so on, but it's nothing but words. In fact, they think that by simply going to church and hearing the Word of God preached, that's really all they need to do, and by doing that, they're right with God. Well, James already dealt with that false concept back in chapter 1, verse 22, uh, when he said that those who just hear the Word but really don't do anything about obeying the word. Well, he said they're deceiving themselves into thinking they're saved when they're not. And that kind of launched James into this whole section where then he just focuses on people who profess faith, who speak the word, who know the lingo, but uh, have not really invited Christ into their heart. And he's telling us this, guys, that true faith brings with it the new birth. Now, we're reading between the lines. we piecing together this from other passages in the New Testament. But what James is really saying is that true faith, true saving faith, brings with it the new birth. What do we call that? What do we say when somebody is a, is a new Christian? They've been born again or born from above. The Spirit of God moves in. That's what it means to be born of the Spirit, born again. You receive Christ and your heart is sincere, the Spirit of God moves in, and the first thing the Holy Spirit does is what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Understand what Paul is saying, and this is what James is basically alluding to as well. James is saying, look, you know, you can talk all you want about your faith in God and, and how you love God, but you know what? If it's not manifesting itself in a love for others, especially those who are the weakest and poorest of society, if you can say to a person who hasn't eaten in three or four days and says, I'm starving, I have nothing to eat, I have no money to buy food, oh, you know, hope that works out for you. I'm going to pray for you. And you let them go and you don't give them a few bucks or take them out and buy them a Big Mac. Well, you know, what, what kind of faith is that? It's emptiness, right? And basically what he's saying is the moment we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit moves in. 
How do we know the Holy Spirit is in there? Because he begins to pour into our hearts God's love. God's love, guys, we've already said agape love, is not something that can be faked or manufactured. We don't have it within us. We have human love. We have friendship love. We have family love. We don't have God's love. Because God's love is absolutely sacrificial, other-centered, unconditional. The only way we can have God's love in our hearts is if the Spirit moves in, which is salvation, and begins to pour God's love in our hearts. This then, guys, becomes the... This is the hope Paul's referring to in Romans 5, verse 5. Now, hope doesn't disappoint, he said. Um, In the New Testament, guys, when the word hope is used, we hope in this, or we hope for that. Understand, it's not a I hope so hope, it's it's an I know so hope. Because it's, it's grounded in a promise God gave to us. Okay? And so the hope that Paul is referring to is the hope of eternal life, which we know we have. How? Because we have the Holy Spirit within us. And how do we know we have the Holy Spirit within us? Because God's love is beginning to flow through us. And that's the only way we know. And this then becomes the clear evidence that we are truly the children of God. Turn to 1 John 4. A section that you're all familiar with, but it really sheds light on this issue. 1 John 4, starting with verse 7. John said, Beloved, let us love one another. Now, the word, all the words for love here are agape. It's all God's love in view. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The word knows God, knows God means saved. Has a relationship with God through his Holy Spirit, okay? So everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God and we have known and believed. The, the love that God has for us, God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Let me just par- uh, paraphrase what John is saying. He's saying exactly what we just said a moment ago. He says, we know that we belong to God, are the children of God, because God's love is in us. Because God's love cannot be in us unless the Holy Spirit dwells in us. That happened when we gave our hearts to Christ, right? At that moment, we, were, we now are abiding in God. God is abiding in us. We have this mutual relationship uh, based on what Christ did and the Holy Spirit living in us. And this is the evidence, guys, that we really know God because of his love within us. As you read the Old Testament, the three groups of people that God always had, we'll say, a soft spot in his heart for were the orphans, the widows, and strangers. And if you read the Old Testament carefully, you will see how God was always, always wanting his people to reach out to help these folks. God was all, in fact, he says, he who gives to the poor lends to the Lord and I'll repay him. You say, well, God's God. Why couldn't he just eradicate poverty? I mean, what, you know, what, what does he want us to depend? God doesn't depend on us. Okay, first of all. And yes, God could eradicate poverty completely. 
But he allows it because it gives the rest of us an opportunity to exercise God's love, to show this world that we're different, that God's love, God is in us and God's love is flowing through us. And therefore, I want to, if I have the nature and heart of God, once I get saved, God's nature, Peter says, we are partakers of the divine nature. God's heart becomes my heart. Guess what? God's heart is for the poor, for the disadvantaged. And if you're a child of God, one of the first things that happens is you begin to sense within you that love for others, that love for the poor. Who do you think has built the most orphanages and hospitals and centers for the poor and the needy? The Church of Jesus Christ. Why have we done that? Because God's love is inside of us. And we have the heart of God. And God's heart is for the poor. And therefore, the fact that we reach out to these people and we give of our resources to help people in need testifies. I'm not saying that no unbeliever is generous. There are generous unbelievers. I'm just saying, no, it's a trade across the board with Christians. You know, James basically said this earlier in chapter 1. Remember verse 27? He said, pure and undefiled religion. That's true faith is what he's talking about. Before God and the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the pollution of the world. So holiness, a heart to get away from the garbage and defilement of the world, to walk with God in holiness is one trait. Another is that we, it says visit orphans and widows. He doesn't say, just say drop in and say hi and leave. Visit them in their distress and do what you can to help them. You know? Hey, just checking in. How you guys doing? Oh, wow. No food again. Huh? Tough break. Well, take care. Good luck with that. It's ridiculous, right? And what James is saying is without God's love in a person's life who claims to believe in him, well, their faith is dead. Or in other words, it's not real. Again, verse 15. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So a person says, you know, one person says, I have faith, but they have no fruit. Nothing to, they can point to in a way of helping. It's like the Pharisees. They, they talked about God all the time. Then they foreclosed on the widows' houses and, and, uh, and did all kinds of horrible things to people to enrich themselves. They had no fruit of the Holy Spirit. They weren't saved, but they believed and, and, and had a, a mental faith. James is saying, look, uh, one person says, I have faith, but it has no work. James says, look, I'll show you my faith by my works. You, you know, None of us can see into a person's heart to verify that saving faith has been planted there. The only way we know it is there is by what grows out of that person's life. I've used this illustration before. Bear with me. If I had two clay flower pots up here filled with soil, and I said to you, only one of them has a seed in it, can you show me which one has the seed? I would say to you, well, I can't tell you right now, but... If you give it some time, put them out in the sunlight, keep them watered, in time I'll be able to tell you which one has the seed. How? Because the one with the seed is going to eventually poke a little shoot out of the dirt, which will grow into a plant. It's what pokes its way up out of the soil that shows us what was inside, that there was really a seed 
in that pot. Well, the same is true with saving faith. We don't know who has it in their heart and who doesn't. You have two people. They both go to church. They both profess to be Christians. Well, how do we know which one has true saving faith in their heart and who doesn't? Well, let's give it some time. As long as they both come to church and the water and the sunlight of God's word keeps being applied to their lives, eventually the one that has the true saving faith is going to manifest itself in that you're going to see the fruit of the Holy Spirit growing. You're going to see coming out from their life the heart of God. It's going to manifest itself in outward ways, good works, and so on. The other person, they go to church week after week, year after year, but there's no real heart for God. There's no real desire to change and so on. And again, I want you just to understand that James isn't teaching faith plus works equals salvation. He is teaching a faith that works equals salvation. The works are the evidence. The works don't save us. They are the fruit, though, of a saved life. Let me quote Spurgeon one more time on this subject. He said, We are convinced that a man is saved by faith alone, but we are also just as convinced that the kind of faith that saves a man is never really alone. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10? He said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not the result of works, lest any should boast. Verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. No, the works don't save us. Paul isn't teaching faith plus works equals salvation. He is saying we are saved by grace through faith. End of it. Period. It's all God. Eternal life is a gift. But if you've really received it with the right heart and have saving faith, it's going to produce works. Those will be the evidence of your faith. And uh, James now begins to tighten the screws, you might say, on his Jewish readers who prided themselves in the fact that they were, you know, God's chosen people and descendants of Abraham. And uh, no doubt James is anticipating uh, them saying to him in light of his true faith and false faith teaching, I can just hear James imagining these folks saying to him, uh, well, we're God's chosen people. Of course we have true faith, just like our father Abraham. Okay. James anticipating that, says in verse 19, You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Now you have to understand the Jewishness of what he has just said. The Jews prided themselves on the fact that as the chosen people of God, they knew. And don't forget now, they lived among pagan peoples all around. And all the pagan peoples were very polytheistic. They worshipped and believed in many gods. The Jews prided themselves on the fact that God Almighty, the one and only true and living God, revealed himself to them as one God, that they were monotheistic. In fact, the Jewish statement of faith that was recited daily by every Orthodox Jew, the Shema, or the Shema, clearly affirmed their monotheistic faith as revealed by God. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. This is what God said he wanted them to repeat every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? One. The word Shema, Shema, comes from the Hebrew word which means to hear. 
That's why it's called the Shema, because it begins with the words, Hear, O Israel. And then they make their statement of faith about the one and only true and living God, that he is one God. So, you know, James says to his Jewish readers, great, wonderful. You believe there's only one true God, great. But let me just remind you, even the demons believe that and tremble, okay? Even the demons believe that and tremble. Believing facts about God in the gospel, James is saying, is important, but by itself won't save you. And guys, James' point is that passive faith is not the kind of faith that saves. Even the demons believe the facts about Jesus Christ and the gospel. They believe that he was the virgin-born son of God. They believe that he went around working miracles, eventually was crucified for the sins of humanity, on the third day rose again bodily from the grave. Not only do they believe all that, they were there to see it all. But none of them are going to heaven. You can believe a lot of right things about Jesus and not go to heaven. I know that there are a lot of people, myself included, a lot of people in this very room that grew up in churches that taught the truth. Not that everything they taught was great, but they taught you the basics about who Jesus was and, or is, what he did, and so on. So they taught you who he, who he is and what he did, and, and we believed it, right? We believed that he was the Son of God who died for our sins, rose again from the dead, as I just said. But we weren't saved. We had passive faith. We had mental head knowledge. But mental head knowledge won't save anybody is the point. The kind of faith that is genuine and saves is not passive, it's active. But what does that mean? Well, believing in Jesus is important, but by itself isn't enough to get you to heaven. Unless you take the next step, listen, and receive him into your heart by committing your life to him. Guys, this is what's called believing to the point of commitment. And this is where a lot of people uh, are ignorant. They don't understand this. They believe that because they go to church and um, have heard teachings about Christ and what he did, who he is, and they believe that, they really do, that that's all they need to get to heaven. And they read the Bible and it says, you know, believe and you shall be saved. And they think, well, I believe. Well, see, you have to understand something, though. The New Testament, it says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't just saying a passive mental assent. It's talking about a, a believing to the point of commitment. Look, when you first met your future spouse, there was an attraction there. And you started going out, and attraction led to love, and there was this relationship that developed. And very possibly and probably, you were head over heels over each other. And you had a, a, a very beautiful relationship, but it wasn't marriage. And the only way you took your relationship to the next level, the deepest kind of relationship two people can enter into, marriage, was to stand before God, family, friends, and to pledge or make a commitment to each other, for better or worse, sickness and health, to be loyal and to stay by each other's side for the rest of your life. It was that commitment that brought you into the marriage covenant. The same is true of Jesus. There's a lot of people who have grown up in churches. They, they've always believed in Jesus. They, they love Jesus on, us, on one level. They have a relationship with Christ in some way. But they've never really, they've never really said to Jesus Christ, I want well, for lack of a better term, I want to be married to you, Lord. I mean, this is biblical. This is New Testament theology. 
That's why 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2 said, I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. The Bible speaks of the commitment that we make to Jesus in salvation is, is really a marriage proposal, or he's proposed marriage to us, and we accept. And when we receive him, it's more than just believing who he is and what he did. It's saying to him, Lord, from this moment on, I make a commitment to you. I want to be your bride. I want you to be my master. I want to live for you, obey you, be faithful to you the rest of my life. Guys, that's the kind of faith that leads to commitment that is what salvation is all about. It's the commitment that brings about the relationship that puts you in Christ. And again, that is what salvation is. It's being in Christ, one with Christ. You were not considered one with your spouse until you married that person. Then in the eyes of God, the two became one. Until that time, you were just two separate people, even though you had a relationship of some kind. The same is true with those who grow up in church, and they love Jesus in their own way. But until they make a commitment to him, they remain separate. They're not made one with Christ until they commit themselves to Jesus. And uh, at that point, they enter into the deepest kind of relationship uh, a person can enter into with Jesus, and that is a marriage relationship. The problem with many churchgoers, and we've talked about this, they don't really want to make a commitment to Jesus, okay, in marriage, we'll say. They want to just go on dating Jesus, hanging out with... Girls, you ever go out with somebody like that? You wanted... A commitment you wanted that ring you've invested time in this person and uh, you're waiting for him to to propose to you but all they wanted to do was just continue to date you and after a while what did you do you cut that loser loose <laughs> you know it's all about the relationship it's a lot of people who go to church who want to date Jesus but they don't want to make a commitment to him and there can be no salvation without believing in Jesus to the point of commitment and receiving him as your bridegroom and Lord. Now, when a person has exercised that kind of faith, saving faith in Jesus, commitment-based, listen, this is what James is getting at. The evidence is going to be works of faith. And James directs their attention to Abraham to prove his point. You have to understand how the Jews felt about Abraham. They so revered him that they believed just because they were the physical descendants of Abraham, they were saved. Add circumcision, I'm in, okay? I'm in, they thought. They so revered Abraham that I'm, I'm sure they thought, well, because we're, the, we're God's chosen people and we're descendants of Abraham, sure we believe, sure we're genuine. Yes, we have true faith. But here's what James goes on to point out. Verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect? Now that just sent Martin Luther into orbit. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man, that a man woman, is justified by works and not by faith only. Now, again, let's take apart what James is saying, what I believe he's saying, and let's be clear. We know in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which James quotes, that God made Abraham a promise based on Messiah's coming. 
Okay, the promise involved uh, Abraham having so many descendants, they wouldn't be able to be counted for sheer number. Okay, and you can go back and pull the study on Genesis 15 and get into this because we went into this in detail. But what I, the point I'm making is God made Abraham a promise based on Messiah, okay, who was Jesus, of course. So the promise involved Jesus. Abraham believed God's promise. And because of his faith, he was declared righteous by God. In fact, that's how all of us are declared righteous by God. We believe in God's promise of eternal life through Jesus Christ, the gospel. And he declares us righteous or saved. But later in Genesis chapter 22, God told Abraham to offer his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. Remember that? He waited all these years, 25 years, for Isaac to be born. 30 well, many believe 33 years has passed, that Isaac was 33 years old when God told Abraham to take him three days' journey to Mount Moriah, modern-day Calvary, and there offer him as a sacrifice. He already believed in God and was saved in chapter 15, verse 6. So what is this all about? Well, he was already declared righteous back in chapter 15, verse 6, so this was not doing something to make him what? More saved? More righteous? No. This was an evidence that he had true saving faith. So Abraham gets up early, doesn't even argue with the Lord. Gets up early, makes the three-day journey to Mount Moriah, uh, takes Isaac up to the top of the mount, has him laid down on a, an altar that Abraham erected, takes his knife, brings it back to plunge it into Isaac's chest, and an angel stops him and says, don't offer your son uh, you know, basically God is saying, now I know that you love me. Now I know your faith is real. Of course, God knew already. All right. But what he was doing was saying that, look, we can say we have faith, but is it backed up with obedience? Because if it's not, it's not genuine, is the idea. Abraham not just said he believed, he proved he believed. And um, James says that Abraham's faith coupled with his works, that he obeyed God when God told him to offer Isaac, that through that act on Mount Moriah, uh, where he was willing to sacrifice Isaac, God, God stopped him. It says that by his faith was perfected. But the Hebrew simply means it was um, brought to fulfillment or shown to be genuine. That by his works, his faith was declared to be genuine just like our faith how do we know we have saving faith in our hearts because we obey god we don't always do it perfectly but we obey god for the most part we that's our joy to obey what god has said and um, again james isn't saying look you got to take faith plus works combine them to get saved no he is talking about living uh, your christian life in such a way as that your obedience proves that you really do know god and um Again, the issue is not just mere head knowledge. Empty professions of faith, mere words. It's actions to back up your faith that proves it's real. Again, Luke 6, 46, Jesus said, Why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? Matthew 7, Not everyone who calls uh, out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father uh, in heaven will enter. I'll have you turn to this one, John 10. Listen to what the Lord said here, John 10, verse 27. Jesus said, My sheep 
what? Yeah, listen to my voice. I know them. Remember now the Greek word for know there is a word that means know them intimately, know them in terms of having a saving relationship with them. All right, I know them. They're really saved. They follow me, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one shall snatch them away from me or out of my hand. But notice what he says. How do we know a person is one of his sheep? Because that person follows Jesus. Right? We, we, we've used this illustration before. I heard a pastor use it years ago at a conference. I've never forgotten this. He said, say you're walking down the street. And on the other side of the street, a guy's walking the other way. And behind him is a little dog, a puppy, walking right behind him. What do you assume when you see a picture like that? That the dog belongs to that guy, right? That the guy's the dog's master. But then comes a, a side street, and the man keeps walking straight, and the little dog turns and goes down the side road. Now what do you assume? The dog was never the, the guy's dog. This guy's not the dog's master, because the dog is going his own way, its own way. The only way we know we belong to Jesus is if we are following where he's going, where he's going. If we're following him, it proves that we are truly one of his children. One pastor said, and I quote, You know you're truly born again when you find yourself obeying God. We're not saved by obedience, but our obedience proves we're saved for true faith works. Well, James uses one more illustration of this. Verse 25, Likewise was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. Now, if you study Joshua chapter 2, it talks about Rahab. And I don't have a time to get into all the story of Rahab. Again, you can go online and listen to our Joshua study because we went into this in detail. But you remember the story. Uh, Rahab lived in Jericho. That was the first city God was going to bring his people against as they have now just entered into the promised land. Well, word has gotten to the uh, people of Jericho uh, for many years the power of the Jewish people's God. I mean, they, they heard the reports of, of God delivering them out of Egypt and how in the wilderness, how God took care of mighty kings. Uh, the Jews, uh, God gave them strength to conquer Sihon and, uh, and Bashan, okay? Uh, these were giants, kings, the, the literal giants and all. And so these people were terrified. And so Moses, or excuse me, Joshua dispatches two spies to scope out the land, or the city, right? And um, they come to Rahab's house. Now, why did they come to Rahab's house? Well, uh, they knew she was a harlot, and uh, harlots uh, had a way of knowing a lot of things that went on because they had so many different guys coming through their doors, right? How did they know she was a harlot? Uh, because in those days, they would uh, paint the sill of their window red. We, we even have, uh, not we, but there's a practice today. You have the, the, the red light districts, right? We have the red, yeah, sorry, didn't mean to go there. I'm just saying, today we see that in a similar way. The red light indicates there's a, a woman, a professional gal there. Um, and uh, so they knew this house contained a harlot. So they went in and they began to talk to her, and she tells them how terrified the people are and, uh, and all of this. Well, 
If you read the story, I believe that Rahab got saved, that she had gotten saved before these two guys showed up, just purely because of all the stories that she had heard from customers about the God of Israel. I believe she was already saved when the two spies came into her house. And you remember how that at one point there was a knock on the door from some soldiers from the king of Jericho who found out there were certain spies that they had come into her house and they wanted her to deliver these guys to, to them so they could be put to death. And she tells them quickly, go up to the roof. I got some flax drying up there. Hide under the flax, and I'll send these guys away. So she opens the door, and here's these soldiers. Where are the two guys that came to you? Oh, you know, they, I don't know who they were. I thought they were just customers. But they, they went out. They're, they, they've left. You, if you hurry, you can, you can maybe catch them. If she would have gotten found out that she was lying and harboring these two spies, not only would she have been killed, she would have been tortured and killed. Why was she willing to take such a chance for these two strangers? only reason I can think of is because these two strangers were now her brothers. We would say in Christ that she had a relationship with God through faith. And it was evidenced or demonstrated by the fact she was willing to take her life into her hands to protect her brothers in Christ. What did John say? If the love of God is really in you, where is it going to show up first and foremost? In your love for the brethren. He who says, I love God, but hates his brother, John, says a liar, and the truth is not in him. I believe Rahab, this is what James is pointing out, that Rahab, she already had faith, and she demonstrated her faith by the fact that she was willing to put her life on the line for these two spies. That work didn't earn her salvation, it just proved she was saved, which is James's point, right? We'll end with verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Just like it's possible to have a body with no spirit, with no life, a corpse, even so it's possible for a person to have dead faith, faith void of fruit and works of the spirit, which that kind of faith, being dead, is unable to save or to have eternal life. It doesn't have eternal life because it's not saving faith. It's just head knowledge. Again, Jesus said that his true disciples would be known by their fruit. So James is going to move on now, okay, starting with chapter 3, beginning to now address his comments to Christian believers. But, uh, you know, it's always important that we understand this, you know, because Paul, Peter, and the other apostles basically admonished us, look, examine yourself to make sure you're really in the faith. If you basically challenge your faith now to make sure it's genuine then you won't be you know judge yourself now you won't be judged by god someday this is important because as we just read many are going to say these are church cores lord lord haven't we done miracles and cast out demons who are these they're not atheists they're not agnostics these are people that went to church they were orthodox they called them lord they knew jesus was lord yet they weren't saved why they didn't obey him not that the obedience would have saved them, but like I've said before, as we move into winter, okay, we see all the leaves uh, have fallen off the trees. If you were to take me into an orchard and tell me in this orchard there are oak trees and apple trees, show me what, what trees are the apple trees or the oak trees, I, I don't know. Give me a few months. 
the spring, when the trees that grow the apples, they're the apple trees. The apples don't make the trees apple trees. It just proves that they are apple trees. Same is true with us. The fruit does not make us Christians. It just proves we are Christians, which is what James is basically saying. Okay? So we will continue looking at chapter 3. And again, I wanted to stress how important it is that people examine themselves, that they don't take for granted. I am I'm just so burdened for people who go to church, hear the word every week, and yet really have not made a commitment to Christ. And they think they're fine because they do believe in Jesus. They, they, they do go to church and, and maybe even read the Bible. But you know as well as I do, you talk to them, there is no real, your spirit does not bear witness with the Holy Spirit that they are children of God. Still a lot of worldly conversation, uh, worldly attitudes, they think in worldly ways. Could they be carnal Christians? Yeah, maybe. I'm afraid the majority, though, are just religious unbelievers. They're the lukewarm. And uh, they're going to stand before the Lord someday and be shocked that they're not going to heaven. That's why, you know, today is the day of salvation. Let's examine ourselves, okay? Let's make sure that we really do know him. How do I know that I know him? Is your thinking changed? Is your attitudes changed? Is your goals in life, have they changed? Is what you value in life, has it changed? Do you value the things of God more than the things of this earth? If so, that's a good indication you're a child of God. If you're still lusting after the things of this world and want to have God in the world, that's not a good sign. So may God give us the grace to look at ourselves honestly, and by God's grace we will continue then chapter 3 next time. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that as you... Well, in your word, Lord, you're always challenging us uh, to make sure we're real, that we're not playing games. You don't want us to go to hell, Lord. You want us to make sure that we really have examined our hearts to see that, you know, am I really, are, are there changes in my life that indicate I've gone from death to life? I've gone from unbelief to saving faith, that I really know Jesus because I have God's love in me. I have the heart of God. I, I want to see people saved. I want to live for the Lord. Father, give us grace to, to really examine ourselves. And anyone in this church who really doesn't know you, Father, please convict them big time. We don't want to see them go to hell. We don't want to see them a part of this group in Matthew 7 that is horrified that they won't be going to heaven even though they spend so much time in church on the earth. Father, touch them, open their eyes, bring them to Jesus in truth. We ask you to keep blessing our studies in your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.